Dear colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the view from the Thorax Center for Radcliffe Cardiology. I'm Nicolas Famigam from the Erasmus University Medical Center. And as always, I uh, do these presentations together with my good friend and colleague, Joost Dame. And this time it is the wrap up of the ESC 2023. The late-breaking trials were quite explosive at times. Uh, I enjoyed the content. Yulster, uh, there was a lot of fuss about invasive imaging. Absolutely. So this was a great meeting in Amsterdam this year. A lot of big trials to be presented. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So uh, four packed days in a meeting with up to 30,000 attendees. So absolutely a... Uh, a must-go Congress, I have to say. Um, on imaging, indeed, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting trials. So first, the GUIDES trial was a randomized controlled trial from Korea comparing QCA versus IVIS guided guidance for DES implantation. Uh, 1,500 patients with either stable uh, angina or ACS were uh, randomized to either QCA or IVIS-guided revascularization. I will be brief. Uh, the investigators um, anticipated on non-inferiority with expected event rates of 8%. Uh, but at the end, the trial appeared to be indeed non-inferior, but with very low event rates. 3.8% target lesion failure in both arms. And with that, the uh, investigators concluded that the QCA-guided revascularization strategy or stenting strategy uh, could be a proper alternative uh, specifically for sites in which there is no IVIS available. Uh, so interesting concept. This is the first time this is really prospectively tested. Uh, it attests to the fact that QCA indeed could be a, a potential alternative. But uh, at the downside of the fact that this trial was with these low event rates not powered to assess the potential of imaging in all kinds of patients with uh, yeah. more complex anatomies. But it's maybe the first of uh, a series of trials that puts uh, invasive imaging into maybe clinically proper perspective. Um, because at one point we were saying, well, invasive mm -hmm. imaging for all and always and then you will have the best results for all your patients and there are some nuances to that i think there are definitely some uh, lesion phenotypes that would fare better with invasive imaging but it it's not like mandatory for all i think well that's that was obviously the big debate during the meeting specifically yeah. during the sessions on sunday as illumian 4 was presented so mm. you know illumian 4 the big uh, maybe landmark oct trial a, a trial that ran in uh, 80 sites across the globe mm. randomizing 2500 patients to either a oct guided uh, revascularization versus a angio guided approach in uh, patients at high risk of future events of being either those with ACS, diabetes, or more complex anatomical lesion subsets. Uh, all of these patients had a post-PCI OCT and the trial was designed with the co-primary endpoint of post-PCI minimal stent area and, and that was of course important, target vessel failure at two years. Um, so what happened? OCT guided revascularization. Uh, resulted in approximately four millimeter longer stand, somewhat more post dilatation, larger balloons, and also 30% more radiation and mm. 34 mils more contrast. With that, the uh, investigators were uh, proved superiority in terms of the first co primary endpoint being minimal stand area. So, minimal stand area was 5.4 in the angio guided arm versus 5.7 in the OCT guided arm. And there were less stand edge dissections, better stand expansion, less uh, procedural complications, and less residual focal disease in those that were uh, treated and, and guided by OCT. Soft endpoints. 
Soft endpoints, uh, but again, the MSA was a, a co-primary endpoint based on the Illumion tree on which the trial was powered for this endpoint. But then, interestingly, the clinical endpoint appeared to be non-significant. 8.2% event rates in the angio-guided arm, 7.4% event rates in the OCT-guided arm. With that, a 10% reduction, non-statistically significant. Uh, and then, obviously, everybody was a little bit surprised uh, following uh, a lot of trials on IVIS that were positive. Now, a OCT trial that was essentially negative. The investigators in Giatali tried to explain that within each of the individual subsets of the endpoint, there were reductions like 27% reduction in death, 20% reduction in MI, very consistent with each of the, of the IVIS trials, but interestingly, overlapping event rates for target vessel revascularization. And that was uh, unseen and uh, explained by the authors as potentially a fact uh, or a uh, proceeding of the fact that the trial ran during COVID, in which a lot of patients with stable symptoms uh, refrained from going back to the hospital with stable symptoms. Um, I think it's a rather weak explanation. I'll come back to that uh, somewhat later in this, uh, in this wrap up. But uh, what I found a little bit of, 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 of a disappointment is that there were no details on the efficacy of stent optimization, mm. on uh, how many patients actually achieved optimal stenting criteria because this protocol was very rigorous uh, in how investigators needed to handle uh, the optimization strategy. Follow-up so no, study. So uh, no details on that, but obviously uh, there will be follow-ups uh, on that. Yeah, well, you know, personally, I find this MSA primary endpoint is an important one. It, mm -hmm. it, uh, it is on the concept, the hypothesis, the framework, if you will, yeah. of uh, imaging guidance. Uh, and that is that was met. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the most relevant to us and to the community should be the clinical endpoint. And I think, you yeah. know, at one point you also have to accept that, you know, the, the mechanistic endpoint doesn't translate mm -hmm. into um, a clinical endpoint. Well, you know, that's, that's also an important message. And rightfully yeah. so, this was a very well designed trial that, that was published in the New England Journal. And, and I yeah. think it is useful because I, I think it also underscores what we said after the first trial. Not all coronary phenotypes are the same, right? And some will demand yeah. more invasive imaging to optimize and mm -hmm. some won't. Yeah. No, that's correct. I think with one, one comment with respect to minimal standard area, this has been for long, for a long time, been the most important and most consistent predictor of stand failure so it is important but again the difference is 0.3 square millimeters so it's 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 a relatively small difference yeah. Yeah. Um, then, uh, as anticipated, also the October trial, and that was an interesting one. So this trial assessed the stepwise OCT-guided PCI strategy in patients with true bifurcations versus an angio-guided uh, approach, a study run by uh, Niels Holm uh, from uh, uh, Sweden. Uh, 1,200 patients, 38 sites uh, that were randomized in 13 countries also during COVID, started also exactly as Illumion 4 in, in 2018. Patients could be enrolled with either stable or unstable angina uh, with a primary endpoint of CV death, uh, target vessel MI, or ischemia-driven revascularization. And again, as within Illumion 4 at two years. Uh, the protocol recommended three OCT runs, so one pre, one post-rewiring of the side branch, and one uh, to assess the final result. Also here, the use of OCT resulted in significantly more contrast, 100 mils more contrast in the OCT arm, and procedures that took on every 33 minutes longer. So that is significant. 
Um, but guess, surprisingly, this trial was tremendously positive with a 30% uh, reduction in the primary endpoint of target vessel failure at two years. 14% in the angio-guided arm versus 10% target vessel failure rate in the OCT-guided arm. So with that, the, uh, the trial definitely uh, surprised me a little bit. Um, but again, uh, a very positive news for a OCT-guided strategy in OCT. But that was despite the fact even that uh, IVIS was used in 15% of the cases in the angio-guided arm. So that to me even more uh, strengthened the findings even further. Yeah, Dan, but 15% in the, in the other arm is, is low, eh? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's low, but it's you would low. expect any, it's at least some benefit. But anyway, what I think is important to underscore is that this trial was clearly positive, 1,200 patients. So this was not a small trial, uh, also very rigorously performed. But when asking the investigators for the rationale for this benefit, there was actually no clear explanation. And that I found a little bit of a pity, because if you look at the supplement of also this trial was published in New England, no differences in bifurcation stenting strategy, no differences in final kissing balloon inflation, no differences mm. in, in rewiring, recrossing, etc. Uh, so the difference likely must be in, uh, in, in more attention to how you position the stance, uh, making sure that there are no uh, disrupted struts within the lumen on the second OCT run, etc. Mm. So something that also will hopefully uh, become clear in the near future. But a trial that was, I think, uh, very interestingly and, uh, yeah. and, and highly positive. Well, it, it's, it's a positive trial, but then at the expense of 100 cc's of additional contrast, mm. half an hour longer procedure time, that is a lot. You know, I, then what, what I question is how reproducible will this be in everyday clinical practice? When this is not, you cannot extrapolate this to no. every cat lab uh, no. in, in the country. These, I can imagine that this would be applicable for expert yeah. sites, but mm. uh, for the uptake in everyday clinical practice, I don't know. Yeah, that's the question. I mean, obviously these, these uh, the sites which were participating in this trial were highly selected, yeah. they were well-trained to follow a very rigorous protocol. Um, but yeah, we have to see what the, uh, the clinical consequences are, but... Um, but you agree, yeah? So a, a normal PCI procedure, let's say a bifurcation PCI, maybe it's 90 minutes, mm -hmm. it's two hours max. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like a... 33 minutes oof. long. Yes, no, that's correct. That's correct. Oh my goodness. And I think that's... But, but it's also a learning process. I think you need to learn when to use the imaging, how to use the imaging. And the only thing the investigators could rightfully conclude that if you follow these protocols, you get these outcomes. More and that work. I think is... is, is yeah, you, you cannot ignore the, uh, the evidence in this case, but it comes at a price. And the price in this case is contrast and time and, and dedication to do your job properly. And I think that per se is not, is not necessarily wrong. No, 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 for sure not. But again, uh, but I also feel this is, this is one trial mm -hmm. and this, this, this begs for, uh, for another trial to confirm these yep. results. Spe specifically, if you compare IVIS to OCT. And uh, that's where the Octavius was about. So Octavius was another big trial presented. Uh, looking at potential differences between very similar but also very different techniques, OCT and IVIS, in terms of intravascular imaging. Uh, again, a Korean trial, 2,000 patients with either stable or unstable angina were randomized to OCT or angioguided uh, stenting. 66% stable disease, 33% diabetes, 12% left main. Um, but what I found interesting, no differences in, in final stenting results, so an identical number of stents, identical stent lengths, uh, identical use of post-dilatation. 
as expected again somewhat more contrast in the OCT arm uh, and procedure times were more or less identical uh, between uh, both cohorts. But then core lab imaging um, found minimal stand area 5.6 in the OCT arm, identical to Illumion, but 6.7 in the IVIS guided arm. And that's interesting to, that you get a little bit larger minimal stand areas in, in patients that were randomized to IVIS. Uh, obviously distinct technologies, but maybe something that in the future will, uh, will explain some of the, of the differences between the two technologies. How was this measured, this MSA? MSA was measured in the core lab of the Assan Medical Center. Yeah, but either with OCT or with IVIS, not, yet not one uniform way of measuring. No, so the MSA was measured with OCT in the OCT yeah. arm and with IVIS that in the IVIS also arm. will give you differences. Huh? Well, that is, that is the everlasting discussion. There are people in the world who say that with yeah. IVIS you overestimate the true lesion diameter, but the most recent studies comparing high-definition IVIS, which was largely used in this trial, versus uh, OCT actually do not show any differences in OCT versus IVIS versus phantom measurements in bench testing models. So I don't think this is a true problem. But that's my, my opinion based on the, the most recent data. But I like this, this study and, and you know, if, if I look at my, my own personal mm -hmm. practice, I, I, I do find IVIS easier to, to, to use. You, you're, you're, you're not dependent of additional contrast, you have a lower threshold to mm -hmm. do additional IVIS runs. That, that, is a, that is a big advantage. Yeah. Uh, but going back to this trial, so again, a study part for 8% event rates. Again, Korean trial in which the operators apparently do a very good job. Event rates here, 3.1% versus 2.5% at one year, which was far below what the investigators anticipated. But in this case, uh, yeah, resulted in a finding that was showing non-inferiority as anticipated. So... Interesting, but again, different technologies that might have their respective benefits in different patient and lesion phenotypes. So I think that is something that we need to uh, need to be respectful of. Yeah, but a lot of credit to uh, Doug Wu Park and our friends in uh, South Korea. Absolutely. Fantastic Absolutely. job. Yep. Um, to put all these things in perspective, Greg Stone pulled all these data into a, a sort of new network meta-analysis now encompassing 20 trials, almost 14,000 patients uh, that were enrolled in randomized controlled imaging trials. Uh, and when he pulled all these data, the network demonstrated a uh, significant benefit for imaging guided PCI. So now also adding October and uh, Lumion 4 to all these IVIS trials from the past. And what was interesting now for the first time ever that the model uh, showed a 25% uh, reduction in all-cause mortality when you do imaging-guided PCI in a wide range of patient and lesion subsets. Yeah, I have an issue with that because the, one of the biggest ones, Illumion 4, did not show that. Well, so. Illumia, I think that is the uh, that is the the benefit of these uh, of these meta analysis and network models is that you can at least uh, correct for the fact that each of these individual trials was simply not powered for hard endpoints because that would allow or would would recommend trials with ten to fifteen thousand patients. Uh, but there are also limitations with uh, with the meta analysis. That is, I think, why you know at the end of the day, the gold standard is a randomized controlled trial, and and I have always yeah. issues when. When you, when you overrule the largest mm -hmm. contributing trial. And that's, right. I think that, that, that's a nice comment. What I like about that is that Davide Cabarano did a very, very nice job in summarizing this meta-analysis and something that is understandable for all of us. And he summarized that now, if you look at all the data 
available thus far, the benefit of imaging versus Andrew guidance is clear. 31% benefit based on the primary endpoint based on direct evidence. So that's pooled patient level data from each of these individual trials. That I think is the most the strongest body of evidence we have. The same counts for IVIS. IVIS versus Angio, 37% reduction in, in target vessel failure. For OCT, however, no statistically significant benefit from the direct evidence, only for the indirect evidence. Um, and no differences between IVIS and OCT also because obviously uh, not that many trials compared the two. So with that, he concluded that based on what we know now, there should be a class uh, 1A recommendation to use uh, imaging, at least IVIS in, uh, in, in guiding PCI, but less persuasive evidence for, uh, for OCT, uh, which likely uh, recommends uh, or, or mandates more trials for OCT on, uh, on showing those superiority findings. That's a, that's, that's a fair conclusion. Yeah, and, and, I agree. And, and again, I think IVIS is it's, it's more user-friendly, let's put it yeah, that way. Yeah. So with that, we conclude the imaging. Yes, yeah, so let's uh, switch gears and uh, go to the heart failure trials. Uh, we previewed the HeartFit randomized control trial that looked into the value of intravenous iron therapy in uh, heart failure patients with um, iron deficiency, but no anemia. Interesting trial, in my opinion. More than 3,000 patients were one-to-one -one randomized. Their me the mean injection fraction was 30%, and the patients, and this is important, were in New York class 2 or 3. So they mm -hmm. were ambulatory. They were non-anemic. And then turned out that the primary endpoint, which was a mm -hmm. composite of death, heart failure, hospitalizations, or change in six-minute walk mm -hmm. test, was no different between the uh, iron uh, mm -hmm. invasive iron therapy and the control arm. And that was a surprise to me. I anticipated a positive trial. Yeah. Um, but we already had this Ironman trial from the UK that was also uh, last year was presented and was indeed also failed its primary endpoint. And we had the other trial, the Affirm HF mm -hmm. trial, which was also a large randomized control mm -hmm. trial that was positive in terms of fewer heart failure hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. But those patients were fundamentally different yeah. because those patients were hospitalized at mm -hmm. the moment of study inclusion and enrollment. Wow. So they were sicker and they also had more iron deficiency, a more advanced disease, if you will. And I think that probably explains and mm. also is my conclusion. So even in the typical HFREF patient who is ambulatory, yeah, it's there is no uh, mm. real incentive to put these patients systematically on yeah. IV iron therapy. But if the patient is hospitalized yeah. uh, with advanced heart failure, mm -hmm. then probably IV iron makes, uh, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Here again, a trial that, that showed a trend. Do you think the meta-analysis here that or maybe forthcoming will uh, strengthen the evidence? But I think that there is a lot of heterogeneity in these mm. studies. Eh? You have, uh, I think that is a fundamental difference. Patients in New York Heart 3 to 4 mm -hmm. versus patients in New York Heart class 2 to 3 and ambulatory. And that really drives everything. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Shock. Yes, and that was to me the the most important trial uh, mm. of the meeting. I was highly looking forward uh, to Holger Thiele's presentation yep. of the ECLS shock trial. Uh, 420 patients with cardiogenic shock uh, in the context of ACS were one-to-one -one randomized to either um, revascularization mm. and predominantly PCI in combination with ECLS versus 
revascularization as a standalone uh, therapy. The primary endpoint is a heart clinical mm -hmm. endpoint, 30-day all-cause mortality. And there was an important exclusion criteria, as you know. So patients who were resuscitated for more than 45 minutes were not eligible for the study. But... 420 patients were randomized, but 77% yeah. of those patients had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and had a mean return of spontaneous circulation after 20 minutes. And I think that drives the study outcome. Um, interestingly, there was no difference in all-cause death between the two treatment arms. That is the main message. And the mortality was still high, almost 50% mm -hmm. in both treatment arms. And an important insight from the study was the adjudication of the mortality, of the death. 50% of the patients had re refractory mm. cardiogenic shock. And that is an important observation because, and it also is a little bit in line with, with our thinking that, you know, ECMO or ECLS will increase the afterload to the LV, an ischemic ventricle at that point in time. And you will only increase the afterload, so you will increase myocardial oxygen consumption. Yeah. That cannot be a good thing, and probably that explains the 15% mm. uh, cardiac death uh, or death rate due to cardiogenic shock or uh, deteriorating cardiogenic shock. But also in one in four of the patients, it was brain injury. So the no. cause of death was brain injury. And this is a very important observation because how do you affect mm. that with an ECLS system? You can't. No. These patients are just dead up front and you will not gonna revive them it's not gonna happen so um there you know there were some some comments in terms of the inclusion exclusion criteria uh -huh. also what we uh, discussed in our preview you know uh, are we what would be the venting rate of these uh -huh. patients well the venting rate was very low only yeah, five percent uh, yeah yeah we're we're vented mm -hmm. um from the get-go that is low um but i it's hard to believe that that would affect uh, the primary outcome of this this study. Uh, and there is another trial that we'll discuss in a second that also adds credence to that statement. Uh, but I think also, um, don't forget, the ECLS came with a penalty. There was a signal to harm. Mm -hmm. One in four of the patients had major bleedings and also patients required yeah. two days longer of uh, invasive ventilation. So I think my conclusion, main takeaway, there is no basis for aggressive ECLS adoption mm -hmm. in the context of cardiogenic shock, specifically in patients who suffer an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that we cannot use ECMO. From time to time, you have these patients that really need escalating mm. mechanical circulatory support. You start with an impella or a balloon pump and you need to escalate, fair enough. But that's a shock team discussion. And yeah. I think rushing an ECLS into a patient, ah, I don't see, I don't see the, the rational here. And we have to be very cautious not to um, over-interpret mm. the, the trial data because there are also some limitations to this study. But then again, you can also not ignore this. And, and we have seen a real explosion of ECMO and ECLS in our uh, everyday practice. I think we now have uh, a randomized study that may help us to get a more rational approach. It's an important message. And uh, Olga even presented a meta-analysis in which we pulled yeah. all of the data. I think five trials, yeah. up, five or six trials up to now, really consistently showing no benefit, rather harm than benefit. Um, the downside is, I mean, this is a difficult population to study, mm. right? We're, we're studying different concepts, patients that are resuscitated versus those who aren't, yeah. patients that got an ECMO early in the stage or 
in the trial 50% that got the ECMO only after the PCI. Yeah. So there are a lot of things that, that may impact the, uh, the, 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 the outcome of these patients. But in general, I think the conclusions are, uh, are, are, yeah, are very clear. Yeah, and then congratulations to Holger Thiele for a simultaneous publication in the New England Absolutely. and in the Lancet. Yeah. That is, uh, you don't see yeah. that too often. Yeah. All right, uh, the next uh, study was the early unload. Mm -hmm. And this is the other trial that I was referring yeah. to. And when we were talking during the preview, we were a little bit uh, sidetracked yeah. by our intel because we thought it was the unload ECMO from Germany. Well, that was a mistake. It was the early unload uh, yeah. trial from Korea that was presented at ESC. And this is an interesting study. Mm -hmm. 116 patients with cardiogenic shock. 43% of the mm -hmm. patients had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah. And those patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either ECLS with... Um, unloading of the mm. ventricle using a transeptal cannula versus yeah. ECLS without this uh, systematic unloading. Mm. Patients were very sick, ejection fractions below 20%, 20% shock stage D and E, so very advanced shock. But it turned out that ECMO and systematic transeptal mm. cannulation um, made no difference. Uh, that said, 50% uh, of the control arm eventually also received mm -hmm. any form of rescue or crossover transeptal cannulation. So that affected the interpretation. But at the end of the day, the primary endpoint, that at 30 days, mm -hmm. was again fit between 45 and 50%, more or less similar to yeah. what uh, Holger showed in the ECLS uh, shock mm -hmm. trial. Mm -hmm. uh, I expected the negative study. It turned yeah. out to be a negative study. I think venting and unloading is important in the context of ECLS. Uh, and in my uh, opinion, we should, we should put uh, some kind of unloading or venting mm -hmm. device in all our ECMO patients in the context of cardiogenic shock. Yeah. I think that is a wise thing to do. Um, it's just identifying the best patients uh, for an MCS and for an ECLS. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then also the question is how to do that. And this, in this case, it was, was transeptal cannulation. It's not something we routinely no. do. No, no, yeah, that's a different, that's definitely a different way of unloading, no. eh? because I, um, you cannot call it venting per mm -hmm. se. It is unloading, but yeah. it's not venting. No. I don't think you will affect uh, the aortic valve, open the opening of the uh, aortic valve with, a, no. with an impeller and a balloon yeah. pump. There is a little bit of a different approach uh, mm -hmm. of unloading and thus also no. venting the ventricle. No. But um, yeah, whether it would result in dramatic improvements in the outcome of these patients yeah. in cardiogenic no, shock, that yeah. is doubtable. All right. Platelets. Yes, uh, stop that three. I think that was an interesting study mm -hmm. from Japan where they looked at uh, a further refinement uh, or simplification, if you mm -hmm. will, of the antithrombotic uh, regimen yeah. in patients after a PCI, mm -hmm. either in the context of ACS or in patients with a high bleeding risk. And patients were randomized to either single antiplatelet therapy from mm -hmm. the get-go versus dual antiplatelet uh, therapy. And the yeah. primary endpoint was at one month. Yeah. Primary endpoint was a safety outcome, major bleeding at one month. And then there was also a cardiovascular outcome at one month, a composite of cardiovascular death, MI, stroke, and definite stent thrombosis. Um, I was a little bit... Um, it was a little bit strange to see that the dosing of the Prezugrel was different from what we are used to. Yeah, that's we are Japan. Used, yeah, so we are used to the dose of 10 milligrams mm -hmm. with a dose reduction to 5 milligrams for Prezugrel. Well, here the dose was 3.75 milligrams and a loading dose of 
20 milligrams instead of 60 milligrams. Mm -hmm. I'm not used to that. <laughs> but with that limitation in mind, there was um, no difference in the primary safety yeah. endpoint, which was uh, unanticipated because I thought this uh, single antiplatelet strategy would reduce major bleedings. Mm. Did not happen. And there was also no difference in the primary cardiovascular outcome. But there was a clear signal that DAPT does make sense. So uh, aspirin and another antiplatelet drug makes sense for the first month. Why? Because when you drop aspirin from the get-go, at least in this trial, there were more coronary revascularizations, mm -hmm. probably because vulnerable plaques that were not, um, you know, that became more susceptible yeah. for events because there was no DAPT in the single antiplatelet arm. And the, the difference was small, but it was there. It was 1.15% uh, versus 0.5% mm -hmm. in favor of DAPT. Mm -hmm. And also the composite of definite or probable stent thrombosis was somewhat higher in the patients who only received uh, Prasugrel. So the conclusion, and this was predominantly driven by the mm -hmm. ACS uh, yeah. cohort uh, in this trial. So the conclusion of the investigators, uh, and I follow the conclusion, is that for the time being, uh, DAPT for at least one month is the standard uh, in these patients. And it, uh, at this point in time, there is no um, science to support uh, stopping aspirin or not providing aspirin in the early t uh, early stages after a PCI. Yeah. yeah, I have to say I found this a little bit of a difficult study. I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a large sample size, but also, yeah, obviously assessing something that has a very low incidence mm -hmm. uh, at, the, at a time point yeah. that we've rarely seen in trials like this, one month. Um, yeah, to me, there is there is... Yeah, statistically no difference. So I, I, I'm not sure the the question has been definitively answered by this uh, by this trial. But uh, and it's a Japanese study, so Japanese it, it definitely findings. Are and we from know the that both for Ticagrelor and Prasugrel, yeah. the, the the event rates, they have more strokes, less MIs, the the higher bleeding risk. Yeah. So it's it, but interesting. It, um, provocative. Ethnicity, ethnicity plays a big role. Big trial, huh? but yeah, to me. Yeah, I don't know what to do with this, honestly. Well, but, but again, uh, we should not extrapolate it to the Western mm. society because ethnicity is a, is mm. a factor here. Yeah. But I think this is the first time that I see a large trial because mm. 6,000 patients, yeah, this is a huge yeah. trial, eh? yeah. was not able or basically mm. refuted the more simplified dual yeah. uh, or antithrombotic regimen. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's important. Yeah. Okay, the arrest trial. Yeah. Um, that brings us back to the patients who uh, suffered an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, this is a study uh, that zoomed in on 862 mm -hmm. patients, and the trialists uh, should be applauded here because they managed yeah. to find 862 yeah. patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in the London era from uh, January 2018 till December 2022. And the primary endpoint was death at 30 days. Mm -hmm. And there were two strategies. Either the patient was transferred to a, yeah. a cardiac arrest expert Ooh. center or the patient was sent to the closest hospital um, uh, for at, at where the patient was found, basically. Yeah. Well, it turned out that there was no difference in the primary endpoint, and there was also no difference in the secondary endpoint of neurological status at, at three months. And I think this is very important. The conclusion of Tiffany Patterson was, well, there is no reason to have a delay and send patients to these expert uh, cardiac arrest expert sites. 
And it makes more sense to reallocate our resources for STEMI and acute dissection care rather than building these expert cardiac arrest centers. And I think this was a, this is an important statement, but it's also now backed up by uh, a trial that, uh, yeah, I think was, uh, was quite uh, unique uh, in, its, in its kind. And uh, I think it is also, uh, it, it mm -hmm. makes you think uh, about how we approach patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Well, should you put these patients on these advanced therapies like ECLS? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Should you send them to the institutions, to the large institutions that provide all these additional bells and whistles? Mm. Well, Probably not. Yeah. Now, what I think is interesting also in uh, comparing all these trials is if you look at the estimated and then uh, eventually found event rates. So in this trial, 65, 63% death at 30 days. In ECLS shock, it was 49%. In Switzerland, I know it's 45%. Here we are around 42%. So this at least suggests me that there is room for improvement, uh, but it's clear from these trials that, yeah, that not, not so, that there's usually that that's typically a team approach. It is about time. It's about uh, the use of different different uh, uh, tools and technology. I don't know, but um, there's room for improvement. Yeah, but for the time being, uh, the patient should be sent to the closest hospital possible. That's correct. No, no yeah. reason to delay. Yeah. Okay. Multistars. Yes, the Multistars AMI uh, was another trial that we thought was of interest mm -hmm. because it, uh, it was basically following up on BioVasc. Uh, Multistars AMI uh, was presented by Barbara Steli from Zurich. 840 STEMI patients with multivessel disease were randomized to basically ad hoc complete revascularization or mm -hmm. staged complete revascularization. And remember in BioVasc, we had the same uh, treatment algorithm yeah but not only in STEMI patients, but also in non-STEMI patients. Now, the primary endpoint was a composite of death MI, unplanned revascularization, hospitalization for heart failure and stroke at one year. Mm -hmm. And as expected, no difference in that primary composite yeah. endpoint. But similar to BioVasc, there, um, there were fewer myocardial infarctions and also fewer unplanned revascularizations in the patients that were randomized to the ad hoc complete revascularization. So we had a difference in unplanned revascularizations of 4% versus 9% in the staged uh, group and fewer MIs, 2% versus 5% MI, and these numbers are quite similar to what we found in BioVasc. So there the difference in unplanned revascularization was 4% versus 7% and the difference in MI was 2 versus 4 all in favor of ad hoc complete revascularization. So we have now the new ESE guidelines on how to approach patients with ACS. Mm -hmm. There is a class one indication for uh, complete revascularization. Uh, I think um, the way to go is continue with ad hoc complete revascularization whenever technically feasible. Mm -hmm. That would be my recommendation based on not only uh, Multistars AMI, but also on the BioVasc randomized control trial. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Good. That brings us to the new ACS guidelines. I think yeah. uh, we didn't uh, discuss them in our preview, but I think it's worth mentioning. Rob Byrne presented mm -hmm. this 108 page uh, new guideline. Uh, on how to manage patients with ACS, so both STEMI and non-STEMI. Um, obviously, there's a lot of new things, a lot of data to look into if you have the time. But we wanted to highlight just a couple of things. Um, 
One, what I found interesting is now for STEMI, a, cl uh, a class three recommendation for the use of physiology in, uh, for the assessment of non-corporate lesions in patients presenting with STEMI during the index PCI. So that is new, class three. So you, sh you should not do physiology for intermediate lesions in non-corporate vessels of STEMI patients and in non-STEMIs, a level of, of a class two B recommendations for physiology in non-corporate lesions. So, not so good news for uh, physiology. Uh, for imaging, uh, conversely, a class 2A recommendation now to use imaging to guide PCI in patients uh, who present with ACS. And a class 2B recommendation uh, for the use of imaging, particularly OCT, in non-STEMI patients with ambiguous culprits. And that I found a little bit of a disappointment because to me, that's where OCT has its largest value and just these patients in which they mm -hmm. present with non-STEMI, the culprit is not clear. We know that phy physiology typically fails. A lot of these patients do have a negative physiological results, but they do have plug ruptures or erosions. And that's where I think OCT can make a big difference. So this recommendation, I don't clearly follow, but at least that's, uh, that's what it is. Um, with respect to platelets, now a level of uh, a class 2A recommendation for stopping DAPT three to six months already also in ACS patients. So we knew that from stable, but now also uh, a recommendation that um, applies for patients with ACS uh, in case they are not at a high restenosis risk. So also something new. Uh, and then finally, what I wanted to mention, and that's in line with the arrest trial as well. So routine immediate angiography after resuscitated cardiac arrest is no longer recommended in hemodynamically stable patients without persistent ST segment elevation. Lab of a class uh, recommendation three. So that I think is an important one also to all our uh, ICCU and, and ER colleagues. Uh, no need to call the interventional cardiologist at two in the morning to do a, an angio in all resuscitated patients. Yeah. Uh, I think very, uh, very well said in terms of the downgrading, if you will, of coronary physiology in the mm -hmm. context of ACS. I, I totally agree with that. And it also fits with our line of thinking. Yeah. I, I think at one point we will see a further downgrading of mm -hmm. coronary physiology in favor of invasive imaging. At least that is my mm -hmm. expectation because also imaging and uh, whether it's invasive imaging, but mm -hmm. also angiography allows you to get an appreciation of the coronary physiology. It's also a lot of work what you're doing in, in FAST3. Um, I think that is the that is where, we're, where the field is heading. In terms of uh, the imaging, I agree with you for ambiguous lesions. That is where OCT is the differentiator. Um, the sensitivity of OCT for those patients that really it's is. It's unparalleled. Uh, yes, and exactly. That's, uh, that, that's, I think, also the, the, the conclusion of, of, of all these things we just said. Yeah. All these tools and techniques are, uh, they are complementary and, and not each technique is, yeah. is, is ideal for each patient and each lesion. And as we said, for non-STEMI, it may be OCT for stable patients. I do believe that uh, that physiology uh, can have a, uh, a critical value, mm. but that, uh, that, that means it's patient-tailored care with all the tools and technologies we have. Um, we're almost coming to an end. There was a lot of data on ESC, so this is a bit of a longer wrap-up than what you're used to. But uh, two or three more small things that we wanted to mention. One is uh, some other peculiar news on physiology. A meta-analysis on IFR and FFR trials. So almost 4,000 patients from IFR sweetheart and defined flare were pooled uh, with respect to their five-year outcome. 
simply because of the fact that in uh, defined flare, a significantly increased mortality rate was seen in patients randomized to the IFR-guided revascularization strategy. There was also something seen in, uh, in, in IFR Sweetheart, however, not statistically significant. But now when pooling these findings, the uh, investigators here uh, found a 2% absolute difference between IFR and FFR with respect to mortality at five years. Mm. And that translated to a 34% increased risk of dying when you're treated according to IFR as compared to FFR. A intriguing finding for which the yeah, at least to me, the investigators were not able to give a, 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 a plausible conclusion. All kinds of arguments were introduced that, for instance, there was a little bit more revask in the FFR arm, perhaps somewhat more cabbage that attested to more complex patients. Uh, mean values of, of physiological findings were, were significantly higher within these trials as compared to the initial trials within the FIM portfolio. I don't really see how that ex can explain the outcome, uh, particularly since event curves for MI and repeat revask were completely overlapping. So it was just mortality. Mm. So why do these patients die mm. more often when guided by IFR? I don't know. I think this is uh, food for thought and uh, definitely something that we will uh, will need to, to study in, in greater detail in the future. And how do you extra extrapolate this to the other non-hyperimic Indices, is it the same as IFR? I, I, I would dare to say that uh, IFR and that that is based on all the validation trials for each of the individual non hyperemic pressure ratios we did, being, being either DPR, RFR, or, or, whatever, or large DPR, or whatever you may use. Uh, I think those are directly applicable to IFR. Um, I don't think that counts for the uh, angio-based technology. I think that's, that's a different animal. I don't think we can put these in any of these two boxes. But for all the rest, uh, the rest of the resting indices, I think they can be uh, considered to be the same as IFR. Okay. Yeah, and then coronary physiology and elderly. Yeah, Does yeah, that yeah. make sense? Yeah, so uh, there, there are a lot of questions in this trial. So FIRE. FIRE was the trial that Simone Biscaglia and uh, Jean-Luc Ocampo presented, also immediately published in New England, a, a trial that ran in uh, 34 sites, three countries, uh, randomizing patients above 75 that presented with an ACS to either a physiological guided complete revesc versus culprit only. Mm -hmm. 1,445 patients were randomized. Uh, finally, mean age was 80 years. Uh, one third presented with a STEMI, 37% women. Uh, Non-culprits were 70% uh, in diameter stenosis. So really significant non-culprits. Also half of them approximately was physiologically positive. But then uh, physiology uh, assessment of the non-culprit could be done either with IFR, RFR, DPR, so whatever kind of non-hyperemic pressure ratio, angio-based physiology, or FFR. And the trial at the primary endpoint of uh, patient composite at one year. Mm. Um, so the trial um, followed a little bit the questions with respect to the sense of complete revask in elderly, because there's a lack of, of, of particular trials in patients above 75. And again, then tested the concept of uh, physiology-guided physiology revask. So to me, a lot of concepts within one trial. So first, the uh, concept of complete revask in the elderly. I think that's something that we, I would dare to say, know already, at least partly based on biovask, based on complete, based on PRAMI, all these trials that showed no heterogeneity in the elderly and younger patients. Mm -hmm. 
uh, we have now a guideline saying that there is a class 3 recommendation to use uh, physiology in the non-corporate of ACS and then a trial that again looks at uh, physiology to guide revascularization in ACS. So that to me is a little bit, um, yeah, in Dutch we would say achterhaald. How would you say in English? <laughs> a little bit too late. <laughs> Maybe a, a bit too late, uh, yeah. simply given the fact that, yeah, you use three different types of physiological modalities to do something that we know doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, if you have a non-corporate and the physiology is negative, we know that 30% still has a plaque rupture, erosion, or, or significantly smaller MLA. Yeah. So I don't think the future here is in physiology. Uh, what I do think is an important finding of the trial that we also in the elderly patient should pursue complete revascularization mm -hmm. and that is something I think that uh, that the authors and, and investigators should be uh, accredited for this is important and uh, and something that uh, that is clear because this trial demonstrated a 27% reduction in the primary endpoint uh, in favor of a uh, complete physiology guided revascularization yeah. particularly due to significant decreases in death and MI. I think that is something uh, truly important Important. But totally as expected. Huh? So I think um, the, the yeah. novelty in this study is a little bit marginal, yeah. in my opinion. Final trial, Notion. Yeah, so we have to say something about structural heart interventions. And the mm. Notion trial is a 10-year follow-up of the patients in, uh, of low-risk mm. patients who were randomized to either uh, TAVI with core valve or uh, surgical aortic valve replacement. Uh, mean age of the patients was 79 years when they entered the study. STS score was 3.0. So we would call it more an intermediate risk patient population. Uh, we already knew the eight-year data, no difference in outcome, and that was basically also repeated at 10 years. So there's no difference in outcome between the two treatment strategies. And if you look at mortality, it is as expected, mm. kind of high in uh, patients who were 79 years at study entry. So that would make them 89 now. 65% uh, of the patients uh, deceased uh, were deceased at uh, 10 years. Um, but I think the more interesting part was what happened with the valves themselves. So in terms of structural valve degeneration, uh, the incidence of severe structural valve uh, degeneration was higher after surgery than after uh, TAVI. So it was 11% versus 3%. But there was no difference in bioprosthetic valve failure, including re-interventions. Mm -hmm. That was uh, relatively low. So at 10 years, only 4 and 2% of the patients uh, required uh, a re-intervention after the TAVI or surgery. So I think all in all, reassuring data that also basically support uh, randomized controlled studies and also our practice uh, in expanding indications like low risk, but yeah. also, you know, the evaluation in patients with maybe asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis and moderate aortic stenosis. I think it makes sense because we have a therapy that is definitely not as invasive than surgery and out to 10 years seems to be at least as good as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I agree. It's really important structural valve deterioration in favor of TAVI, so it's simply better. Yeah. And the fact that in this trial, this did not translate into a clinically relevant difference in terms of... of uh, uh, new interventions. Yeah, I think that that attests to the fact that these patients were 89 at the end of the 10-year follow-up. So I think yeah. that that explains the fact that there is no difference. If you would go to younger populations, I think this may become apparent and then the, uh, this, this difference may, uh, may become more relevant. Well, you know, the 10-year uh, data from uh, the Evolute Low Risk and the yeah. Partner 3 and also Intermediate and Partner mm -hmm. 2, those will be important. So at the upcoming 
TCT meeting, there will be four-year follow-up data of the Evolute low risk and five-year follow-up data of Partner 3. That will definitely also give us some new insights. With that, I mm -hmm. think uh, we come to an end of this uh, wrap-up of ESC 2023. Mm -hmm. It's clear that we were uh, super excited about mm -hmm. uh, all the trials that were presented. Uh, there was also a, a large number of uh, publications in the New England Journal and in the Lancet. Mm. So I think it also attests to the quality of uh, this year's event. Um, I enjoyed it. I hope you also enjoyed mm. our presentation and uh, we look forward to uh, having you for our next uh, preview and that will be uh, for the TCT, for TCT meeting. All right. Excellent. Thank you for watching. Bye-bye.